Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Wednesday evening? It's Groundhog Day, but <laughs> no, it's not. It's Groundhog Day is tomorrow. So what if we were like in a loop where we're always thinking about it's going to be Groundhog Day the next day? Would we? Would it ever be Groundhog Day? So I was thinking of that, and uh, yeah, I'm not yeah, a, a holiday that's always tomorrow. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the uh, is it the Red Queen or the White Queen? And you know, never the rule is jam tomorrow, never jam today. Mm. You know, and it's it's kind of like that. But I think that that movie uh, touched a lot of of chords i think um and it's a little bit i feel like we are sort of stuck in a groundhog day loop uh which also made me review uh one of philip k dick's uh more downbeat stories a little something for us temponauts have you ever read that? It's no, worth checking out from his collected stories. It's uh because he he uh he imagines that uh time travel would have run the same fate as the space program mm. and become a program and kind of sort of semi-mothballed, at least in, in public consciousness, uh, but nonetheless with dramatic effects. So, yeah, I've been thinking about that, uh, breaking out of loops, breaking out of, you know, personal time loops. Mm -hmm. How about you? Uh, yeah, I, well, this, uh, this week has flown by. I took my son to the science museum this weekend and let him run free. He was fascinated by a big brontosaurus skeleton and a giant mouth with plastic teeth. That I this is Oklahoma really City. Mm -hmm. It's right next to the zoo. Right. And, uh, you know, they had some pretty interesting. The term for it is not Rube Goldberg machine. But have you seen those metal contraptions that where a ball will roll and hit you know, a, a sort of pendulum and then the pendulum comes back and hits the ball in the other direction and it will go down a little swirly loop. And Yeah, it's like Mousetrap, that game Mousetrap, but sort it's of exactly yeah. like that. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly it's like Mousetrap. Uh, there, I sent you a cool picture of us in front of a heat sensor. Uh, it was sensing all of our, that was, that oh, was okay. Yeah, that's what that, that's what that picture was. That was, me oh, okay. That, oh, Rios, all right. and then, okay. and then Gus, Gus was in the background and uh, Rios's mother was in that too. The heat censored version. Uh, and then he's fascinated by the planets. His favorite book is called eight little planets. So they had a, a section of the museum that had these enormous replicas of the, of the planets of the solar system dangling from the ceiling. And he loved that, but I just let him go my pregnant sister came down with her four-year-old daughter and we barely saw each other. She texted when she left. She said, I'm sorry, we didn't get to spend more time together. And I said, when 
these kids are this age, you just let them go and you try to hang on for dear life. So <laughs> Gus will normally uh, fight going to bed, but he was sound asleep by 745 in the evening, uh, just from all the running and climbing. And we looked at, at cool rocks and it was a great trip. Um, but yeah, it's flown by between working on my writing, sending out resumes, taking, you know, night classes for IT work, uh, just all sorts of stuff. You know, I, I feel like those stories that people tell 20 years on when they say, you know, I'm, I'm rich and, and comfortable because my mom worked two jobs and went to night school to become a nurse. And she put me through college. I'm the, I'm the mom right now <laughs> doing all the, all this work and, but uh, it's good because I don't have any time to think about things. Really, I just I'm a, I'm a, I'm a creature of pure motion right now. Okay, okay, okay. Well, you've got your five words, and you did very well last. Night. You've been you've been back on your game that way. Yeah, uh, wanted to applaud you. Uh, Thank you. You know, there's always at least three different streams that we've got you working on uh, in each episode. Your words to mm -hmm. infiltrate slip in somehow as discreetly as possible. An imaginative challenge. And of course, uh, you know, carrying on with uh, another interesting round of discussion. So do you want to hear my band? Let's do it. Hit me with the band. Okay. All right. There, this is one word. They're called force freed, not force feed, but force freed. Although that has a lot of different meanings in this day and age. <laughs> and uh, they're not, uh, it's a, it's a group. It's a, there's six of them and they're they're uh, They cover the gender spectrum, so to speak, but they perform only in diapers Okay, they wear diapers and they have a kind of uh, relentless theme. Their first album is called Ask Your Adult to Cut Your Lemon in Half for You. So they are speaking to, well, from Gen Z and uh, some millennials still living at home to people in senior citizen homes and, and nursing care who have lost track of what their, their premise is that uh, basically everyone is suffering from uh, a level of, of functional dementia that has uh, either brought about a sort of an infant state or an aged infant state or both. But uh, they have a lot of issues with what's going on today. But they're they're chatty and boppy in their diapers, and their their lead single is "I Want to Be with You, But Your Body Gets in the Way." <laughs> and they, excellent. They're kind of uh, not surprisingly sort of in and out of time. They can't decide what age they're in. Uh, and I think that's true of pop music today. Um, mm. So force freed, ask your adult to cut your lemon in half for you. I want to be with you, but your body gets in the way. Their lead single.
I want to be with you, but your body gets in the way. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Oh, the many talents, the many talents of JDL. There you go. Um, uh, you, yeah. you have an aphorism for us today? I do. And this was, uh, well, I have two and you'll see how I got to the second one. <clears throat> My first one is, if it becomes too much to wash a spoon, it's time to reevaluate. <laughs> and because I was forced to uh, yeah, say that to myself, I, I then came up with an extension. Uh, in these times of anxiety, frustration, anger, and maybe even helplessness, it is difficult, but nonetheless important to remember that tactical bouts of self-loathing may be distinct signs of irrationality and deeply therapeutic. So I think that- Did you say, did you say irrationality? No, rationality. Okay. okay. I think self-loathing is, is sometimes unfortunately very deserved, you know? Yeah. yeah I just yeah. don't like to talk about it because- everything is beautiful and we're perfect and you know it's no it's it's those it's those other people that are the problem yeah not not, not yeah. me not me i'm i'm mommy's special boy chris did you know that did you know that you're actually talking to mommy's special boy i did know that i did know that <laughs> i'm not sure what your brother thinks about that but uh, you know i i had no doubt about that actually um i think there are many signs of that 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 it would not it would take a very very junior level sherlock holmes uh to to not pick that pick up on that pretty early <laughs> yeah 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 i and i think there are many implications that ripple out and and will reveal themselves continually over time yeah mm. no i definitely mm. see that perfect well i'm glad i'm glad that you noticed um so i have my five words that you give me at the start of the show and as you mentioned I also get an imaginative challenge. Yes. And I, I have almost, I'm, I'm just so excited about the number of them I have. I was really in doubt about which one to throw at you first. Cause I've got now, I just had an explosion of ideas. Uh, you're my favorite Guinea pig, you know uh, it's nice. just, but I thought, it was time to get back to some drawing because you uh, like me really appreciate the notion of visualizing and, and map making and uh, sigils and symbols and mm -hmm. working on mm -hmm. a fairly uh, well-framed uh, visualization uh, as in, you know, a single sheet of paper, but um, I was thinking about that distinctive moment uh, and it's picked up on in the movie Groundhog Day of the alarm clock of the numbers flipping over. And you know that sound in a digital alarm clock of when they first came out, they come out of flop over like death. Mm -hmm. numbers, you know? mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I remember that being a really distinctive uh, moment, you know, when digital clocks began to show up everywhere and you needed a little light you know, a little red light to sort of say AM or PM. Mm -hmm. And um, I was pissed off because as a child, starting, I don't know, maybe around Gus's age, 
I had a really cool uh, dimensional thing about telling time, you know, and I love that idea because I, I was like, well, I'm going to tell time what to do, you know, as a kid. Well, no, no, mm -hmm. I'm, not. I'm, I'm learning how to, mm -hmm. to read time is what they meant. But I remember that thing being beautiful, being tactile, and there was all sorts of springy fun things. And years later, when the digital thing came out, I thought that is just so what we're doing. You know, we're flattening everything out and it's just some numbers. Mm -hmm. Awful. So I want you to return to the great art form of the clock face upon which deep syntaxes of thought depend. We've talked about, you know, this, I mean, it's the orbit of the earth and the moon, the circularity. It's, it sets the visual tone for the calendar and so many other levels of thought. And it's become a beautiful art form. I think there are still great industrial designers designing new men's wristwatches, at least, that have fantastic new you know, clock face designs. But I want you to take the idea of an alternative clock face a little bit more personally and a little bit more uh, quirkily, whether surrealistically or or not but i want this design that you're going to come up with to have some reference obviously to the conventional uh 12 number clock face which is also related to the compass of course but to maybe think about compasses and other measuring navigational tools and maybe also to to try to reference that against your own day Maybe we have some personal icons that mean something special in your world that you might have to explain. Maybe this, this clock face will get the idea when you, when you show it to us or show it to me. And, but we'll need maybe some interpretation. I think that's one of the themes about when we're talking about time is that we start with this, this very, you know, an astronomical idea. We move down to social cultural ideas. And increasingly, we've gone into very private secret worlds of psychic um, notions of time. Yeah. And I think this is the, the battle for time is part of the psychomachia or the battle of the spirits, the ghosts and the demons that we're involved in now. I, I think culture wars is a bit sort of kind of uh, sterile and antiseptic compared to what it really is. It's about deep symbol associative patterns and uh, very private idiosyncratic magics being crushed by large uh, ideological belief systems, whole lot of stuff going on, but an alternative clock face that uh, I think you're going to need uh, at least a full size bit of paper. I didn't yeah. want to warn you to get but, uh, too big. Of, yeah. I just, I defined my notebook. <laughs> That's what I was yeah. rummaging around for while you were talking. Yeah. Something where you can do a little bit of, uh, of detail in the, in the icon iconography side of it. Cool. But, be interesting to see what you come back with. Cool. Well, I got my I've got my big book and I'll be I'll be sketching while we talk then. Do I have a pencil? Nope. Screw it. I guess we're doing it in pen. That's the way we do it. First idea, best idea. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Um, well, that is very cool. 
Speaking of time, how, where would you like to start today? At what point in time would you like to start? Well, I heard this expression. I know, I know, maybe it was uh, someone was just uh, in passing and they said, you know, in record time. Uh, as if I think that it was sort of this woman coming back out of a store and announcing to her husband that, you know, hey, I'm not just frittering around, you know, shopping all day. I'm I'm back to the car in record time. And that made me flash back to a moment when uh, I was 17, the, the time in Los Angeles between high school and college. I remember hanging out with this old black dude on the loading dock. He was a co-worker. And I learned a lot from him. I was fascinated by him. And he really made the time uh, a lot more enjoyable. And uh, I told him, you know, he asked me, you know, what if I had plans for my 18th birthday. I didn't really. Uh, I, I did end up having quite a time. Then. But he made a comment. He said, well, the big ages in life are 16, 33 and a third, 45 and 78. <laughs> And that made me laugh because I, I knew what he was talking about. And I realized today that none of my students have any idea what those reference points refer to. No idea whatsoever. Uh, and, of course, they refer to the RPMs of, of records primarily. That's, that's what he meant. That's what he was drawing on. So that was the connection with that, that phrase, record time. And that got me thinking about there's a lot of, um, you know, there's not much really great uh, journalism and, and certainly not critical journalism in the pop music field. But there is a lot, I think, of, of really good commentary from musicians themselves. And a lot of the people that interest me have made comments about, uh, and they're older, you know, they talk about the difference the transition between the LP, the construction of an LP, the music, the sequencing of the songs, and how the two sides, like two acts of a play, um, created the architecture for the album, whether it was a concept album or just a collection of songs. Nonetheless, the, the LP, and I mean... That resonates with a lot of people from from my era of how that 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 time frame influenced social interactions like parties and conversations. You know, someone would get up and change the, the record or you'd have them stacked up. But that basic structural unit of an LP side and you know lp we a lot of people have forgotten that means long playing record that changed totally when you got the cd and suddenly you could cram in an hour into the music and now uh and i'm finding this with with my um i mean i released a cd on my own on indie creation and i really think of it as a full piece of music it's it's about an hour and 5 minutes and i would be hoping that people would treat it that way but the reality is now with Spotify is that people just, you know, buy individual tracks that catch their eye and put them into their own mix, you know, and shuffle them around. I don't know if you do that. Um, I kind of I sometimes do that. And I but I really like the idea of 
the CD as a book, as, as a whole conceptual mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. notion itself. So we're always time streaming now, you know, we're breaking up all of this, uh, well, the ceremonial structured time of what it, what it means to have an album or what it means to watch a TV show at the same time, or, uh, well, reading the same book at the same time, you know, book clubs have tried to bring that back. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder for people to do things in sync. And I think we're seeing that across so many, so many aspects of society. And I think we talked about marching band uh, music earlier, one of my band ideas, which I've been listening to more of Albert Ayler, who was just about as radical, I think, as you can get. But he really loved marching band. He loved that idea. And that was a structural thing that gave him the freedom to get so wild and improvisational. And he spoke about that, about needing a platform to jump off of. And for him, it was the marching uh, band tradition, which was reinforced with his military experience and church music and the routine, the social routine of church. And I think we had an enormous amount of structure to rebel against, or as he puts it, platforms to jump off of. And now I think everything is just fragmenting in such a way that uh, we've lost any hope of simultaneity, as in unison. Think about the beautiful thing of unison, you know, Uh, it's unusual. And, And yet the pressure is on to think in unison, to have the slogans in unison. And we're torn about this idea, you know, we're really torn about that. So I thought... Before we get to uh, some very specific uh, quotations that I want to throw your way for you to riff off in any direction that calls to you, I thought I would open just with that and throw that to you as a kind of, I mean, there's a definite sort of uh, underlying theme to uh, to those concerns. How, do, how does that relate to you? When you mentioned people putting songs into playlists, I can't stand the tendency of modern musical artists to release seven singles but no album. Mm. I can't stand it. And it doesn't make sense because if the songs are long enough, seven songs is enough to make a fairly decent prog rock album. It's about yeah. 50 if it's about 45 50 minutes it's a fairly decent hey, album. Hey, yeah. But if they're released as singles artists will say something to the effect of hey man you have Spotify put them in order put them sequence them yourself. I don't want to sequence the album. I want you to sequence the album. Yeah. And I want to and I want to listen to it. I don't want to participate insofar as it requires me to sequence your album. So that is a big bummer to me. I'm a completist to the point where if I get into a specific artist's catalog, I've been getting into Tim Hecker lately, the kind of, he's kind of a avant-garde ambient composer in a kind of Brian Eno style. Oh, I should listen. You should, you'd love him. Uh, He does some really- Oh, I I, I think you've, I think you mentioned him before. 
that that name does i'll follow up on that again thank yeah. you yeah you'd like tim hecker um but i'm such a completist that i want to start from his earliest album and over the course of three or four days listen to everything that he's done in order yeah in order is really important i want to hear it from the beginning to the end the shows not being uh watched at the same time being streamed at different times hbo has been trying to make event tv a thing that occurs again whether it's with their shows euphoria i know everybody tuned in on well, I didn't. I haven't seen the show, but a lot of people tuned in to see Euphoria every every week when it came out. Now they're doing the mushroom zombie apocalypse uh, story, The Last of Us, which I do tune into because I'm a sucker for all things zombie, good, bad, ugly. <laughs> if it's if it's zombies, I'm on board. The, I watched all eleven seasons of The Walking Dead, um, but and people are tuning into that which leads me nicely into that point you just made, which I think is super brilliant and should be explored further, which is that people have a hunger to do things in unison. The first thing that came to my mind was the concert, which still exists, although COVID did almost kill concert going and Mm -hmm. frankly did for, for many people, people who have, who are still afraid of contracting COVID in public spaces. But the concert is an, is an element of that. And I think of the different types of mosh pits that I've seen or been a part of. I was once in a mosh pit called a wall of death, which is where you split the crowd the way Moses parts the Red Sea. And the singer says, I want you to look at the person across from you. And when I count to three, I want you to kill that motherfucker. Right? And then you... One, two, three, and the crowd whoa, hits together. I dislocated my shoulder during the wall of death. But uh, I'm thinking of these, you know, masses of people. If you've ever seen a EDM concert or Skrillex or these DJs who have these boom, 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 and you see the crowd, you know, boom, like a wave all yeah. moving together. It's a feeling of being in sync and euphoria that is... Uh, very human and I think ritualistic, maybe the closest thing we'll get to a ritual, but that TV thing to get back to what I was trying to say, that TV thing and people's need for communal synchronicity across space, right? Temporally linked, but not spatially. So uh, is 100% currently being manifested in slogans and ideology and beliefs that is a hundred percent what's going on that need to be on the same page with people which is very quickly you know how how kids will be on their on their phone and they'll see the little phone icon and it looks like an old phone and they'll say what the hell what is that like what is like what does that mean or another good one is when you go to save something on a computer and you see a floppy disk the yeah. floppy disk is still the icon, but kids don't know what the hell it is. It's just the symbol for saving things. It's lost. It's semantic right. meaning uh, on the same page is going to do the same thing because kids are going to say, what's a page? What is, why would we need to be on the same page? But we do, we do 
across space. That's what holidays are. It's the it's the Greek, it's Kronos and Kairos, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's horizontal time and vertical time. And this need to get together and uh, celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever feast or festival, it's the exact same human impulse. And as those things get atrophied, I'm not saying that they atrophy, they're, be, they're being atrophied. Uh, there has to still be some kind of link. Somebody has to be thinking the same way as me at the same time that I do. And there can't be a difference in that because we haven't, we're like, uh, we're like a civilization that doesn't have any football. So we start killing each other because there's no outlet for it. So those are my initial thoughts about what you said. That's um, well, there's certainly, there's a range of stuff going on there. I think that what we're, what we're discovering and this, it, it feels to me like this enormous horizon of is opening up where so many of the conflicts of our time, so to speak, have to do with uh, an some sort of emergent paradigm shift about the nature of time, and this is this is what we we started off this this year thinking that, and it just every time. I just sit down for even a couple minutes and think about that. It just seems to spread and expand and undulate and oscillate and ripple, ripple out further and further. Um, okay. Well, uh, first, there's a book that I want to uh, call attention to, which I don't know if we've discussed on the show. Uh, so I don't know if you've read it. It's called An Experiment with Time. And exper- J.W. Dunn, D-U-N-N-E. Very I interesting of, fellow. Of this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a very popular book in, in the, uh, well, people like T.S. Eliot knew about it. Yeah. William Burroughs wrote about yeah. it. Um, and Dunn was an interesting guy. He he came up with some very, with a very, uh, a complex, but nonetheless, uh, I think very interesting idea about the serial nature of time. So he's kind of an amateur outsider uh, philosopher on the nature of time. But I think he uh, his training was in was in math. But an experiment with time deals directly with dreams and is uh, an extensive meditation and personal researched documentation of the experience kind of the dream version of deja vu where you you seem to predict an event uh Mm. in your dreams Mm. and the notion of, of premonition and how that might work and he comes up with a very different and very specific conclusion about the nature of these kinds of dreams which i don't want to uh spoil for people. I I just think it's a really interesting book of a kind that we don't have enough of today. Someone very bright, but kind of on an amateur basis, doing some really interesting thinking about a very peculiar psychological phenomenon, which many people have, have had some experience of, 
And he puts forward an interesting explanation. And it is the kind of book that has influenced a lot of people that we consider heroes. And then I, I think they've done some interesting things with it. So there is that. Andrew Sims, uh, S-I-M-S, is an author of a book called Symptoms of the Mind, which I think is one of the most interesting uh, investigations of the conflict and the chasm between psychology and, and neurology or the brain in more physiological terms. But he throws out just hundreds of interesting little observations and and uh, thought-provoking uh, asides almost from his main points, kind of the way that Gregory Bateson does. But one of his assertions is that if we're thinking in, in the context of mental illness, uh, whether that be the social label or, or that be more a personal sense of, of anguish or discomfort or dysfunction, that from an external observational point of view, a, a dislocation or an inability to deal with time is almost mm. a certain diagnostic tool in determining some sort of crisis within an individual, some mm. fundamental dysfunction. So I thought I would throw that up, up to you just to because he's got the whole spectrum working from neurosis on up to uh, various psychopathologies. Uh, it would cover the distraught, traumatized individual all the way through to the schizophrenic. And I think there's a suggestion in that that it may be also about the social adjustment of people from the, the age of young children, you know, the, my thing about learning about time and how to, mm -hmm. to read a clock. Um, and maybe Gus is going through this now, but the sense of, of socialization for, for young children, very young children, having something to do with not just their time frame of when they're hungry or when they're wanting a nap or wanting to, you know, but also kind of intermeshing that with, well, the larger, you know, adult real world thing, first of all, with parents and then, you know, the, the, the larger social frameworks they have to adjust to how, what do we think of Sims comment that the first diagnostic, let's put that pressure on the first level of diagnosis of some dysfunction uh, has to do with some uh, dislocation in time. I would wonder what direction that was moving in. What I mean by that is, is the dislocation in time caused, it's a chicken or the egg question. Is the dysfunction being caused by <clears throat> the dislocation in time or is the dislocation in time being caused by the dysfunction it's that radio antenna type yeah. thing and i think that the way that we think about things in terms of rupert sheldrake's idea of the the brain as being an antenna 
would suggest that it, while it's not coming from inside, it might be a bit of a broken antenna or perhaps broken is the wrong word. Even perhaps it's just a differently designed antenna that doesn't quite function with the rest of our human organs. That to me is whether it's the chicken or the egg that kind of gets at the heart of a lot of what we're talking about uh, in terms of the internet and the widespread dysfunction in terms of people's mental health these days. So I have two thoughts about that. Number one, and I hope that this isn't too much of a digression, but I feel like you'd know about this. When it comes to dislocation in time, schizophrenia, these things have 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 existed for quite a while before pre-modernity. Yes. Right? They weren't as prevalent, although there also weren't as many people. So I wonder how much uh, modernity and cities and nine to five days and halogen lights that you have to sit under are increasing this kind of depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, what have you. And then my, my second thought is that the answer to curing mental dysfunction implicit in what's being said here by Sims is that if you fix people's relationship to time, potentially you could fix these mental problems, right? That's the yes. idea. I, I think that's a very interesting extension. I'd have to go back to symptoms of the mind to see if in any way that argument takes shape in, in his words. But I think that is a very, very shrewd and provocative uh, research field opening uh, gamut that you, you've thrown out there. And I, I'm personally of the view that absolutely it is, and I would put it this strongly. To me, uh, all of the ambient noise, the lights, I, for me, the lighting is, is the big thing. You know, you can fly over huge sections of the world, particularly, and of course, the oceans, and it's all dark. Uh, you can fly over, you know, New Guinea, and, you know, there's, there's nothing. You can fly over large parts of America. There's, there's huge swaths of planet Earth where darkness prevails at night. And then where most of the people live, the stars are invisible, you know, because of the lights. And there's all of the ambient noise. In the last, um, well, it started about seven years ago. My internal psychology began to change, I noticed, because I was becoming hyper aware of ambient noise, building noise, air conditionings, ventilation systems, on and on and on. That's Lynchian. Yes, it was, and it's been, it, it is absolutely pervasive. I don't, I, I sometimes really appreciate it because I hear a musicality in it and it's changed my thinking about music and it's changed my thinking about the dimensionality of sound and how it's coming from many different levels and different distances and different frequencies and you know, I think that's the price of being more alert, you know, is that you get more stimulus and, yeah. and then you have to have ways of dealing with it. But I don't think there's any question 
that that it is these profoundly structural material factors that are entirely subject to the laws of physics as we know them at the basic high school level that have predetermined a dislocation of mind there's no question about that and the the almost uniform response to being in extreme wilderness and silence is a sense of the roaring silence you know yeah. the yeah. noise uh and for anyone who's had experience even in flotation tanks just yeah. your normal recreational ones but certainly if you pursue the john lilly sensory deprivation experience which i tried to do uh on about 10 occasions he talks about hearing your central nervous system yeah. which is kind of a popping and, and that is a very real experience in in my my uh goes at it i don't think that that he planted that seed i think i i really did hear it and there are other little distortions you know they're kind of a brownian noise that i picked up on and so there is a, finally an issue here of just simply maybe too much stimulation as being the defining element of, of the modern age and certain kinds of, uh, of stimulation. And we do know that schizophrenics on street corners and, you know, homeless, you know, talk about this. They talk about swimming in a sea of electromagnetic radiation. They talk about these sounds uh, long before, you know, David Lynch got obsessed with electricity as a problem. That was, a very common feature of, of uh, mental illness complaints when electricity was just getting started. August Strindberg had that obsession. He, he was always, these infernal electricians were trying, you know, when he was going nuts. So there's a lot in that that I think is kind of hard to ignore. And I certainly think there would be um, some very fruitful uh, very hardcore sociological research that could be done into the phenomenon of, of autism and to see whether or not incidents of autism relate to overstimulation in family house environments of TV, computer, you know, more of this stuff. If you removed that, would there be as much if we looked at parts of the world where they don't, you know, kids don't have access to that? Is there dramatically fewer instances of autism? Those kinds of questions. So I think you're you're really on to something that way. Uh, and I I think that that is kind of what what I know what that that Sims would say is that any the more dislocation of a person's individual sense of time. He also means distancing from, from one's own cycles, you know, um, which can be very different than someone else's. So it's not just the social time of, you know, knowing when to take out your trash and getting to work and that, that there's that for sure. But the more dislocation there is from any kind of coherent routine, the more psychic distress will eventually result. They often say that people who live to a very old age 
are creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. They do the same things. Very particularly, science is fascinated with what are these people eating? Well, it turns out it doesn't matter the quality of the food, whether it's vegetarian or carnivore. It just matters about the consistency. Do they eat it every day? Probably not Twinkies, but if it's mostly <laughs> healthy. Last forever. <laughs> yeah, which last forever and are banned outside of the U.S., I should say. Them and Skittles because of the dye. What you said about hearing your central nervous system and about being within a kind of natural time, not social time, but natural day, night, uh, uh, seasons, you know, as the years tick over is very interesting because when I picture that in my head, I'm seeing a very kind of beautiful uh, wave chart in my mind of a wave kind of moving. What you said about introducing screens, whether that's television, video games, slot machine, candy crush type shit, whatever that is. What's interesting about that, besides the neurochemical dysregulation that it necessitates, its whole existence is about doing that. But what it does to time is interesting too, because I love films and I do like video games. But if you think about it, a film or a television show is is compressing and distorting time. So you're in a scene that takes place at one point, and then you're hopping to another scene. You might go from light to dark, winter to summer. Films can do anything. That's what's interesting about them. When you grow up with a well-regulated sense of time with relation to your environment, art like that can be very stimulating and very interesting because you are doing something that you don't normally do. Mm-hmm. But I wonder what happens when that's in reverse. And when a developing brain learns to perceive this imaginary screen world that's constantly hopping from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, and then you're forced into the the real world that does move on a more natural flow of time. And I wonder if that's not what autism is, right? This this kind of, you know, uh, calling things what they are, being socially inappropriate, seeming kind of distant. It's almost as though it's somebody who's been going, you know, at the speed of sound and then is all of a sudden <laughs> slowed way, 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 way down. And they don't know how to, it's like the reverse of not being able to keep up. It's more like they can't, they can't slow down. It might be more of an ADHD thing, right? That might be more of what I'm talking about, but those autism and ADHD to me seem like two sides of the same coin that might be, that might have a central cause in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's, there's certainly, uh, there's got to be something in that because there certainly the the rise in incidence of them is 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 concurrent and suspicious. Therefore, do you? It made me think of while you were speaking. I I don't know if I'm imagining this or if I've really seen it, but 
I believe it's set in Grand Central Station, certainly one of the major uh, metropolitan train stations. And I think American, either there or Union Station in Chicago. But it it somehow composites in apparently one unified wide angle shot. People, the whole, you know, the, the crowds coming and going, but people at very different speeds. So it appears to be like maybe 50 different films composited into a single uh, screen image. But it shows some people moving very, you know, so fast they blur. Some Mm -hmm. people are barely moving. And I think that that is a, I mean, even if I'm am imagining that, I, I really do think I've seen that at some point. It's been on music videos. I've seen that in music videos. Yeah, it, it there there it, it's there was one that was that kind of started this all off because I'm I'm remembering something in black and white that was uh, the kind of thing you'd be shown in school that was really quite an, a technical achievement to pull off at the time. I think it'd be moving it, like this to film. Yeah, it. but it's everybody's kind of on it. It's not cut. It's not intercut, and yeah. I don't know quite how they achieved it. But the idea is that that this enormous crowd of people in this very uh, monolithic civic space. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I'm sure it is central uh, grand central station, old grand central, because it has the Zodiac uh, ceiling painted ceiling, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's very true to how maybe things are working that people's uh, sense of time fundamentally is so very different. It's not just they're moving physically uh, at different speeds, although of course they are, um, but it's the it's the psychological allegory that that this uh, film was trying to sort of portray that people really are on different timescales, and they only appear really the the idea of everyone being at this great crossroads of civilization at the same time is a little bit of an illusion, you know, because mm-hmm. some people are just sort of, you know, disappearing off. And some people just are constantly barely appearing at all. They're moving so slowly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, we've we've had a good warm-up. And uh, I, I'm now ready to, to pitch you a couple of quotations because I'm really enjoying this, of just throwing some uh some pithy well-framed statements out to you uh and getting a response but i like this one because um it's from cormac cormac mccarthy who's an author i know that you are aware of and you uh we haven't that i recall uh haven't really discussed him very much which i think is interesting uh might be fun to talk about his new novel at one point did we? No, it might be fun to do so. Oh, yeah. Because I, 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 I haven't even gotten close to that. This What's it called again? It's called, well, it's two. Uh, it's The Passenger and Stella that's Maris. I, yeah, that's what I thought. I do. I, I mean, I have such mixed feelings about him. Uh, mm-hmm. I really do. I would love to have a, a, a debrief with you about that. But this, I think, does some interesting work in, in just a single sentence because it, to me, it cuts across 
extremely personal, private, psychological experience. But I think it also can apply to the larger social cultural realm of history in a way that's very relevant to a lot of the debates uh, in the media uh, right now. He says, scars have the strange power to remind us that our past is real. Uh, I know you have some scars, both uh, on the surface and inside. We all do. Gus is starting to probably get a few, you know, pick up a few. You can't live long and walk around, uh, not with bigger people around and dogs and, you know, adventures to be had and not pick up a few scars. Brick what do you think about the phrasing of that? I think that... Uh... <laughs> I like the I like the phrase strange power, first of yeah. all. I think that's a really nice uh Cormac McCarthy has this great ability to be both very purple and verbose and also uh, uh to contract that down into very simplistic prose that I think works in contrast to the rest of his stuff. I also like the idea of being reminded that the past is real uh to to see these kind of markings on on yourself and to be you know to to go down memory lane because i feel like now uh in the 21st century i feel like we live in the past constantly the past and the future but it's a past that is created by other people it's built for us, for us to observe and live in. But I have a scar right here on my hand. And I remember where I got that. I got this 15 years ago after my friend Jimmy's father passed away from lung cancer. Uh, his mother asked me to help him get a bunch of stuff out of their storage because they were moving town. And I reached down big stack of boxes that I'm on right and for whatever reason he asked me to grab a box that was lower than the rest of them and I reached down to grab it and the box slipped out of my hand and my hands jerked up like this and caught the flap of another one and cut it still have it I have a scar on my leg from when I was eight years old I was playing Indiana Jones in my room with my little brother and we had upturned laundry baskets, plastic laundry baskets. We've talked, this just rang a deja vu, but we've talked. I wonder what the episode it was. It was early on. And it, I, I do remember this story. So this is interesting. It's coming back. Okay. Sorry. Go back. Ahead. No, no, no. It's fine. Uh, and my mother warned us if she told us once, she told us 10 times yeah. not to do that. And we were jumping from my bed onto a laundry basket. Yeah. Boom, boom onto my brother's bed. And eventually whoosh, I went right through and it became very sharp. Yes. Got to a yeah. point and dug into my leg. And I'm 36 years old. Still have that scar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's well, still well, there. I tell you, I tell you, I I, I understand that very, very well. But what do you I think? wonder? Sorry, go just, ahead. Yeah, just just one more thing is that I I do think that the choice of talking about scars 
is interesting because of its relationship to physical pain and to being uh, wounded in a way. Um, Because I think that the way I'm reading this sentence is that the fact that you're being reminded of it means that you're noticing a scar and it's calling up a memory, but you don't, you don't get any of those, you know, I have tattoos. You don't, you don't get that without some kind of hurt. Right. So, so pain is a connection to the past is very interesting. They often say that you remember, you can remember, and I have this, you can remember when you said something awful to a girlfriend or a friend or a random person at a bar. It doesn't matter. You can call that memory up. And it's interesting to ask somebody if they can immediately call to memory uh, or to call to mind, I should say, one of their best memories. You see what I mean? You know, if I I say to you, Chris, if I say, think about the most embarrassed you've ever been, it comes up immediately. And then I say, well, now think about what's the, what's the happiest you've ever been. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's easy. It's a problem and it, 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 it could be something, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are always exceptions, but it seems like uh, one of those anchor points of what we call human nature to focus mm-hmm. on, you know, the negative uh, or to focus on things that, you know, it's the, the pleasure versus pain principle and pain seems to win out. But I think there are a couple of things about this quote is that, I mean, Pain isn't mentioned. Uh, I mean, you fleshed that out, so to speak, for us, and it's it's obviously implicit in in the idea of scars. But also, healing isn't mentioned, and that you could say, well, that's also maybe implicit. It's it's a pretty um, cut and dry, so to speak, uh, look at something that just by its presence validates its own reason for being it 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 it, even before every scar tells a story there's there's a cause and i think what the weirdest thing about that sentence is is the word real i'm i'm very suspicious whenever i i hear or or read Mm -hmm. the word real um because what does that suggest that only well obviously plenty of people have made up more interesting stories about scars than than the the actual scars call for that's pretty you know that's that's common uh and that's forgivable if it's an interesting enough story but that's i think he means something even more than that and i wonder if the implication is all right, if you don't have scars, uh, how do you know your past is real? And here's, I think, a really good question for you. If you were to then frame a category of, well, scars, and what else are we going to put in that box? What else is evidence of the reality? Are we going to say a photograph's evidence? Uh Interesting to think of, of a photograph as a kind of scar. Um, 
I mean, what is like a scar in that sense? What else works in that, in, that we could put in that box and say, okay, I can go to my scar box and pick out not just scars, but two other items, two other existences in life and say, well, that's how I'm, I know my past is real. say maybe I have a lot of old DVD storage and it's really interesting pick those old boxes up and look through them and see the movies that I was really into when I was 16 17 years old old maybe Isn't it strange that my thought immediately goes to Facebook memories or phone memories? Yeah. No, I think that's perfectly uh, perfectly valid today. That would be where I would think too. And in a, in a very, um, uh, on an even sort of more down-to-earth level, uh, if, you, if you save them, receipts. Ooh, you know? have you, uh, library, library check-ins. Those are great records. Not that yeah. your past is real, but that the past in general is real. Yeah. There's something yeah. very strange about that. And I I thought that would be a good um, bookend counterpoint to Alexis de Tocqueville is someone who uh, we were all engaged to read when I was in school. Frenchman. Uh, writing about democracy in America in 1835. Mm -hmm. You know, and he was considered he, uh, a very articulate point of view of what this emergent nation and possibly empire, how it looked to uh, more sophisticated <clears throat> European eyes. And I think this is an interesting remark from that time because it seems terribly timely to this day. But I do think it's interesting in its own right, and I'd be happy for you to comment just on it. But I think it would be interesting to, to hear you connect it back to the McCarthy quote and thinking of scars on not just the individual body level, but on a larger sort of social level. But de Tocqueville's uh, remark is, the only historical remains in the United States are the newspapers. But if a number be wanting, the chain of time is broken and the present is severed from the past. I am convinced that in 50 years, it will be more difficult to collect authentic documents concerning the social conditions of the Americans at the present day than it is to find remains of the administration of France during the Middle Ages. And if the United States were ever invaded by barbarians, it would be necessary to have recourse to the history of other nations in order to learn anything of the people who now inhabit them. Now think about that from the point of view of 1835. I mean, I think that's a very peculiar uh, observation that 
has that it's almost like a Henry David Thoreau level of insight, you know, to me anyway. How, yeah, how do you relate to that comment? And do you see a relationship back to the McCarthy quote? Well, it is very, it's almost spooky because the further you got into that quote, the more I thought, how did this guy know that in the early, early well, not early, but almost 19th century, how did he yeah. know that? Yeah. And it's so illuminating because it's suggesting that the condition that we're speaking of on this podcast, episode after episode, Somebody saw it coming. Somebody saw it almost 200 years. Somebody saw it coming. Yes, they did. Would, yes, they that did. You would, that you would know more about the goings on of, you know, the political machinations and what have you of medieval France than of America at that time. And that. <clears throat> When it comes to the McCarthy quote, my initial impression of this then is that there's um, there's a difference between those two. I see them as being very different quotes because Scar is reminding you that maybe not, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. I'm thinking on... <laughs> If it, you know, America is a nation that is built on suffering and slaughter and all these horrific things that happened in its in its being built, wars, uh, nonstop wars. And if those are if those are are, are scars then it would remind a person that America's past is, is real, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not coming together for me. The, the puzzle, the, the puzzle is actually, I'm going to take just one moment and think a little bit more. Well, it, it's, it, it isn't clear to me. I mean, I kind of arrived at the juxtaposition of those two uh, fairly intuitively. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did notice straight up that the first level of read of, of the McCarthy line is, is very much on the personal level of one's own scars. And, and, and we instantly start yeah. thinking about the scars we've got, you know, and the stories behind them and the need for validation within our own private psychic space, uh, some sense of continuity, the narrative that we've constructed of our, not just our lives, but but our core identity, which is making those decisions about is there continuity or discontinuity uh, on, on sometimes very subtle uh, mood levels, minute to minute. Uh, but nonetheless, the larger notion of scars within a society, I mean, starting at the community level up to society, up to the larger culture, we seem to be very keen on, on celebrating those within certain contexts. There's a, an enormous call 
to really dig into the wounds of of the past and to kind of keep them fresh and and unhealed i think in in many ways you know to keep picking at the scabs mm-hmm. uh, i mean a lot of that i think is is some of the complaint with with wokeism today that it's not about healing it's not about moving forward it's it's certainly a radical argument about the nature of how that's done uh and there's probably, you know, there, I think there's there's room to talk about that on on both levels. But the de Tocqueville quotation goes back more to the end of the, for me, goes back to the end of the McCarthy quote of this notion of what's real, and the fact that all standards of of real uh, go out the window because basically there's nothing there's no evidence that that res- it just disappears that the scars do heal they get forgotten they get, there's no evidence on on which to make any kind of of adjudication about the reality or validity of of historical view and that there there's something i mean one thing that that de Tocqueville definitely does is is make that comment about america very precisely that there's something in the American consciousness that he's almost predicting cultural amnesia, you know? Uh, do you do you have any insight as to what led him to say that? What his line of thinking was to have such a, a spooky insight into yeah, 2023 well, America? Um, it's been a while since I've read his his work in, in, in at book length. But I mean, I think one of the the arguments is that America's mission uh, to break away with not just Europe and European nations of the time, but that larger philosophical framework of the old world mm-hmm. and the old world and the new world, I think, were enormous paradigms of, of influence that um Unfortunately, we have a hard time talking about that because they uh, they trigger in people a whole sense of colonialism and fire up a whole woke uh, paradigm yeah. that is right. not really worthy of the name paradigm. It's it 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 distances us from an enormous break historically that was very valid and did ripple around the globe. It affected much more than just. Um, countries directly involved with Europe. But so I think from the very beginning, America was predicated on eradicating uh, connections with the past and forging a new future, uh, arrogantly, uh, heroically. Uh, He had mixed Mm. feelings. He saw both good and bad in that. Um, But I I think that, that... the this the cultural amnesia gene if you would accept that framework for a moment he somehow mystically connects that with the american spirit of of its own um and just intuitively that rings true for me and i'm not sure i could defend that or uh explicate that more fully either that's so, so fascinating. Right. That is so 
That's so interesting because what comes to my mind immediately is that if the the American project is to break free, to achieve a kind of freedom, it does seem in 2023 that we are in this country in particular locked in a conflict over what breaking free means what that represents and isn't it interesting that both sides to their own different varying degrees and methods are willing to implement a kind of prison or totalitarian uh, sort of fascist push to enjoy their own type of freedom that's Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a really intense way to put it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, I, you know, fascism has a very, a very specific definitions. I'm using it much more colloquially as the, the boot stamping on the human oh, face. Oh no, I understand like, exactly what you mean. But, I, uh, I think that's much more, I think your approach is the much more utilitarian um, mm-hmm. because that, that is, that's the way it's appearing now as a, as a, as a word, as an anxiety, as a fact. Um, and it probably was always like that. I don't think things do sort of take a, you know, necessarily a very formal presentation actually out in the world. Mm-hmm. But something, what you were saying just before that made me think of a, a principle uh, from anthropology, which is something I think that might be worth thinking about. If we looked at cultures that are seen to be highly absorptive of other cultures. Uh, And that means flexibility. And also it greatly uh, can enhance their survival uh, capabilities as a a larger social unit. I think you can see that in, in individuals too, people who are able to take on board new things and somehow integrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I remember sort of coming across that in formal anthropology terms in the context of uh, West Africa, particularly Nigeria, which is sort of the, you know, it's the economic cultural powerhouse of, of Africa, but certainly West Africa. Uh, despite its political problems, there's just a lot going on there. There's a lot of uh, money. There's a lot of art and culture. There's a lot of of, of strength of uh, cultural impact on the world. Very absorptive, very, very absorptive. Yeah. But the anthropologist would also say the downside to that is kind of either a groundhog day or uh, a goldfish thing of every day kind of being new because it's being there in other words that there's a there's a price for integration there's a price for being able to take on new influences and to to be obsessed with the new and i think that's what de tocqueville would say about america that there was an obsession with the new Mm. an obsession with the frontier there was an obsession with breaking free of the old world and that had a lot of fantastic energy to it. And it also had some horror, some ability to forget mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. 
uh, scars, wounds, <coughs> atrocities. I mean, it, there is a downside to that. And I think that somehow his read of the American character was just so far ahead of the curve, it's hard to believe. It happened religiously too. Mormons, yes. hoodoo. I mean, all these religions that come from old countries and became syncretized with Catholicism or Protestantism or what have you, uh, and then continued to progress. This is so interesting, and it makes this perfect metaphor for what we're talking about. The spirit of breaking free, of melding, of uh, appropriating or appreciating, however you want to look at that particular argument, different practices into something new. I'm a big fan of progress with limits, of knowing when one has progressed. So when you come to something, let's use, I'm a big magic fan, right? Uh, not the card game, the practice. Mm-hmm. But when you, <laughs> when you uh, syncretize a religion with uh, sort of indigenous occult ideas and create something new, uh, you do create something beautiful because it's pulling from disparate places and those those different proclivities and ritual and ideas are playing against each other and with each other in ways that are very dynamic and interesting and progressive, Yeah, dare I say. But then you end up eventually in the 90s with something like Wicca, which isn't anything, which has progress as its whole motive. And you end up with the ooey-gooey kind of slop of nothing that, that doesn't mean anything. So de Tocqueville, his ability to identify this as a, as a key American characteristic the the desire to uh, uh, to to not have any kind of past have any concrete tangible reality so that progress can continue and him being able to have the foresight to see what that's going to do in the future which is literally where we are now he couldn't have known about things like russian twitter bots or 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 whatever or even our newspaper like our news the fact that he mentioned newspapers is so stunning to yeah, me because i mean because the new york like, the new york times it isn't real now right i mean <laughs> and uh so this idea that progress has this great idea but it also has this fatal flaw this achilles heel built into it that if you don't ever stop doing that you end up with a a society unmoored from time with no with nothing in common and no consensus on what reality is is just uh you'll have to send me that quote in in its entirety if you don't mind because i think that's just really uh one of the most stunning things i've heard in the past few weeks that it came you said 1835 1835 yeah it's eerie it's um I mean, Thoreau had some comments only, uh, you know, five or six years later that have that same level of just prescient sort of precision 
that it just, there's no way that that could have been realized by them in any kind of, of, of the detail that we're hearing it now, because I mean, there wasn't a mass communications uh, there wasn't a man in the street. There wasn't sort of a person in the street. There weren't streets in a lot of cases. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. This idea, oh man, I'm just tripping out about this idea because it's suggesting that a particular spirit that animates a culture will necessarily manifest the technology to meet its ends. Yes. Well, that's that's a Charles Fort related idea of, you know, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steam engines will appear in steam engine time. But I think that what if you if you start to because that sounds cool. Right. But, but if you start to peel that back and you think, well, wait a minute, what are the mechanics of that look like? Mm-hmm. How does that sort of work? Um, and it it connects back with with some of the really interesting theories about swarm intelligence and how uh, like colony or organisms function, you know, Lewis Thomas writes about, you know, there's one or two ants and then there's like five ants. And then at some point there's a quorum and the thinking starts. And the thinking starts. That's one of yeah. my favorite you know, lines I, from this podcast is when you brought yeah. that photo. Yeah, when the, when the thinking starts, it's, it, <laughs> that it, should be the it, Lost Explorers tagline. D- yeah. that, just an ellipsis. When the thinking, then the thinking starts. <laughs> yeah, and it it really puts a, a a very interesting light on the notion of what constitutes thinking, and it really gives us. I mean, because we we have a kind of a muddy idea about that, as if just sort of the stream of of consciousness nonsense that's going through our brains constitutes thought and and that may not be uh you know a reasonable or certainly not a helpful idea at all but i think that uh it would be cool to do uh like an informal course of really looking at trying to find some of these just super uncanny comments about well, like that time period, the early industrial revolution, the early 19th century, or before modernity got really crunched, how did some of these visionary thinkers, commentators, just people hanging out, what did they see? And what would that mindset look like today? What what would could we be seeing now, mm-hmm. you know, that would really hold up? in in a little bit of time i don't think there's much confidence i don't ha- i mean i think about that a lot and i think i i don't know if there's anything that could be said today that uh well that's a good thought experiment you know to really brainstorm out some assertions and put like a one or two sentence limit on it of what you would see as being the extensions of some of the current problems of our time some of these peculiar not just problems but but peculiar mindset and social trends yeah well i think that's a good place to put a pin in the main conversation what do you think that was i uh, do although i did want to run two other uh 
quotations past you because I think that they come from really beautiful writing uh, points of view. Okay. Um, Jim Morrison, the dead will be left with too many buildings. Mm. I think that's uh, for people who don't think he was a great writer. And I understand that point of view. I just disagree totally. I think he, he really was a very, uh, a remarkable individual for someone who died at just 27. But this is something that I think really does resonate. This is from William Burroughs. And I think it's just such a beautiful line. And I think it says so much about individual psychology uh, and the nature of where perception and memory diverge and hold hands. And it certainly has a lot to do with the evocative power of music. But the line is, he was looking at something long ago. Isn't that just a beautiful, simple line? I mean, that just, I think that really, that really speaks to me about the nature of my perception, the, the obsessive sweeps back into moments, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of the past. And then, you know, and I'm, I'm almost still here, but I'm just, you know, so many other places and i don't know don't know why you know yeah I mean, the spatializing of time yeah i do like that that aspect of spatializing time and i do like the morrison quote the dead will be left with too many buildings <laughs> that's so that's so good everything i hear about morris because i've never gotten into the doors <clears throat> i had a guy who was in a poetry class that I took in college, poetry 101 or something. We read The Wasteland and and some other works. But he would come to class every day dressed. He looked like Jim Morrison and he would dress like Jim Morrison. And our final project was to put on a poet a, a poetry reading as the poet. Okay. And cool. believe believe it or not. He came as Jim Morrison and he yeah. did Jim. And uh, that was the uh, the first time I was really introduced to his his work. And I thought, damn, that's good. That's really good, <laughs> you know. Um, and Burroughs is everything I've ever heard from him was just I mean, that was just one of the he's very unique in terms of how smart they both they, they're they're part of a, a movement of i don't know maybe 20 artists across a range of media who really grabbed some understanding at a very very uh almost cellular level of the mythology of the second half of the 20th century you yeah. know really yeah. uh they who's were, that now who's doing that now I I I don't see it happen. I think this is one of the ways to talk about our time now is a collapse of 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 mythos, mythos you know. Mm -hmm. I think we've lost mythic time. And I'm not sure where we've uh what we've replaced that with. I think that's what we're searching for in 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 the in these episodes is maybe some new model about well where has that energy gone to where has that sense of uh, mm -hmm. of time gone to and on that note I I think one uh, 
one thing I would like to do is maybe to round uh, the time segment off because I, I do want to get back to a couple of the other things that we've talked about in terms of uh, the influence of photography and, and film possibilities is what that might mean for a new paradigm. Uh, the idea of museums and cabinets of curiosity, you know, but the museum is, is a concept of that seems to be surviving in a way that the, some of the older, particularly 19th century commercial entertainments of say the circus and the carnival, those are kind of falling by the wayside. You mentioned the zoo. I think the zoos are not in the same uh, I mean, there are some good zoos and, and Oklahoma City Zoo is, is considered you know, pretty good for the size of it. It's not like the San Diego Zoo or mm -hmm. uh, the St. Louis Zoo, but they're they're still acceptable, you know, whereas we don't mm -hmm. like circus animals anymore. Uh, but the museum is a very peculiar uh, aspect to it of it's kind of of graveyard and necropolis of artifacts but it can also be vital living thing. I mean, the Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, uh, America alone has some great museums. And obviously, you know, you could say Europe, I mean, for many people is a museum, <laughs> you know. Which yeah, is yeah. And I went, I went to the British Museum five years ago and it blew my mind. Yeah. I would spend, I would spend all my time. I don't have any uh, real interest in conversations about the British Museum in terms of, you know they they stole this or that i don't care it's it's amazing it's it's an amazing place to hang out well I, that would be something i would like to pursue for next episode and i think the interesting word is conversation because i i am in contact with two very senior uh museumologists or people with some real uh you know presence in that as a professional field and they talk about the conversation the museum is having with the public and the different kinds of conversations and why that thinking is very different than just a storehouse or a collection. You know, how does a museum differ from just a collection? Mm -hmm. What is the dynamic thing that gives that some dimensionality that it's not just a serial, you know, linear uh accumulation of stuff uh, and how does that influence our sense of history i mean isn't a museum in one way a definition of history if you don't yeah. have any museums how do you know your history is real and so how does that connect back to scars and how does that connect to ooh, ooh. you know oh yeah the, uh, the kind yeah, of museum, museums are scars yeah, yeah. They're, they're like anybody who has anything to say about the imperialism or colonialism that brought a museum like the British Museum into existence isn't wrong. The same way that a scar isn't wrong. Right, right. It's it. I mean, and without it, uh, without the museum to look at, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a very open witness to itself for good and for ill. You know, but we wouldn't have any way to even review any of those decisions in the past without those mechanisms, without those institutions. Uh, and I think that's that's an interesting way to think about the larger cultural 
artifacts of time and how we're reckoning time. And it's a good way of looking at our own era of what would be a museum of today? What would be a reasonable time capsule of today? Do we feel like we're really up to speed with when compared to the past? Or does everything seem just kind of tragic and sort of, um, you know, I always think of just this awful Bart Simpson rat, you know, doll that I found in some land <laughs> when I was doing urban archaeology. And I thought, God, that's it right there. You know, yeah. it's yeah. Uh, yeah. so that would be, be something... a Bart Simpson doll and, and Kim Kardashian's taxidermied ass. There you go. See that that's at least a little bit more interesting. That would God imagine <laughs> what that would fetch at Sotheby's in times to come. <laughs> God, man, the wow, the auctioneer would, wouldn't would know what to do with that. Yeah. Are you ready to show me your clock? I am. Let me grab it here. Oh, sorry. Almost knocked over my trickster guy. He says hello, by the way. Oh, okay. Is that that's from uh, your from Taos, huh? Yeah, that's my Taos guy. This is the, the fellow from Taos. All right. So, wow, the, camera, the camera's not great. Okay, well, that's certainly going to uh, for listeners. I, it, it definitely is uh, geographical and requiring some definite interpretation but i think this is very much on track with what i was hoping for right so we have we have an image here that looks uh a bit like an hourglass set on its end with the clock face in the very middle of it uh to the right of this particular clock there are visual representations of moments throughout the day with corresponding lines that lead to the actual numerical value of the time so there's a there's me writing it takes up a big uh, portion there's a gus by the couch there's something that i've only labeled as the dark time i'll leave that (laughs) up to interpretation uh there's cleaning cleaning supplies a tree with clouds and music on this other time, this is when I go to sleep, and the lines—it's uh, hard to see. I'm sorry, but no, no, uh, I, 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 I understand. Yeah, no, it's good. Uh, this is this is dream time, right? So there's an upside down staircase, a malevolent face, a pair of tits, a dinosaur, and uh, the building that I always see in my dreams, which is a kind of uh, uh, Roman columned. Uh, almost plantation style house directly on the beach almost in the sand with two spiral staircases that while i was drawing it suddenly made me think of strands of dna right or the you know what's the name for the the medical uh with the snake the snake that twists around the the sword Uh, the caduceus Um, i think thank you yes the caduceus um and so, so these are all watched over in the in the very middle of it, and uh, as I'm looking at it now, it, it suddenly looks like you know the central figure is sort of pushing this out, uh, looking looking at the in the middle there with uh, this this fella 
right here. Oh yeah. And yeah. These two things come out. It looks like he's sort of punching outward with that. Yeah. Punching uh, out of the hourglass. Yeah. That's a, that's a smartphone. And he's the, he's the third man watching over all of it and, oh, and dictating okay. things. So that's, I that's like that. I, I think that's yeah. a great, that's a, you know, we've talked about the, the third man is, is with kind of a, a sinister sort of element to it, but I think that's a very interesting overseeing uh, presence, a, a, an interesting way to iconize that. Yeah. 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 I like so all, of, I got. all of those are great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I um, that was a lot of fun. I had a I had a good time with that. I think you could you could really blow that up, and and it it it. Uh, I love the I love how you've thought of the, of the dream and and the, the the iconography there. Uh, I think that's fantastic. A dinosaur tits, you know, and that house, the the sort of the strange plantation house. i mean that's got a lot of interesting stuff going on for well i encourage people to try to do that to try to um to create a, a psychic landscape uh machine visualization of their own sense of time and to ha- inhabit that model you know that's how we're going to get free you know, I was thinking about um, relief maps and who doesn't like, love relief? You know, we all want pain relief, relief from everything. Mm-hmm. But that saying, you know, that uh, the, the terrain is is not the map. The map is not the terrain. I think the, the solution is to proceed deeper into these models, deeper into the maps, deeper into the clock face, personalize, inhabit those re-spirit them and repurpose them more around one's own psychic space and the the frame the larger framework is 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 still beautifully there but i think it's a way to personalize and to find out a little bit more about these deep grammars these deep syntaxes of understanding and sense making that we we all thrash through on our own and if we can get any little bit more insight, so much the better. But I love that. What if the I'd, map? I'd is like the... that on a on a wall or a t-shirt. You know. What if the map is the territory or the terrain? Well, it is. Everything is. It, it's it's certainly a kind of terrain. Absolutely, yeah. it is. But in some ways, it's. It, I mean, a really like an amazing relief map, uh, like the kind that I've just featured in one of my latest music videos. Uh, it, it's based on an enormous amount of knowledge about the terrain. So it has become that. It's it's really the essential nature of the terrain. And I think in, in uh, you know, McCarthy terms, it's more real. The scar is, is almost more real than the past. Because hmm. the scar is still there and the past isn't. And the Ooh. map, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think of it. That is an interesting way. There's so many doors being opened through this conversation. Every once in a while, I always enjoy our talks, of course, but every four or five episodes or so, I have one where I'm like, this is a fucking banger. And that's how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> but I'm... Me uh, too. Me too. I, I think that it's really... 
it's wonderful when there are little just whispers of and vibrations that trigger and trigger and trigger and start to you start thinking yeah and something that the tocqueville quote is so that the tocqueville quote is so important i think i apologize for interrupting no no i'll send that to you i i'm glad i knew you dig that and i knew that you'd catch how well it's just inexplicable that it's spooky. It's that so point. spooky. spooky. I, got, yeah. I got I got chills when you were reading it as it went on because he got deeper and deeper and more incisive with every word. I was like, oh shit, he's got us. <laughs> he's, he yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm so pleased because I I haven't really uh you know, I think it was maybe I don't know, might even be high school. But it's been a long time since I've I've really uh, I, you know little sort of bits and pieces because he has some amazing observations, but the 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 level of detail of that and thank you for for letting me read the whole bit of it because I wanted to share that it really listeners need to hear that sort of the the in its entirety. Uh, okay, all right. Well, it's tool time. It's, uh, it's tool time, and this is this is a really cool one. Not that they're not all cool, I think. This is called The Crowded Bullseye, okay? The Crowded Bullseye. And you and I think some listeners know that I'm just totally devoted to my blowgun practice. Mainly my small blowgun, which I'm using in the in, in indoors at about uh, 35 feet is the length of my hallway. I do have two other sizes and I am, uh, I do have a javelina hunt scheduled uh for later in february um so there are hunting darts and they're really bolts that are quite intense and uh, that's a bit more of a production to really practice on the longer pipes but this is really true and it can be it can be documented visually uh and it certainly uh fits under the rubric of of known physics but a blowgun dart both attracts the flight of the next dart and resists it. So this relates to time in the sense of precedent and habit. And I think there's a lot of stuff we could explore in this. In but think about it for a moment. You nail one shot perfectly in the bullseye. So you've taken up what is a very defined amount of space. So it's very difficult for another dart. I've had, I've had a few runs where I, I'm stacking them, you know, three, which is unusual. It's like splitting an, a, an arrow in archery. Um, but that's, that's unusual. Um, but the moment you've, you've put a dart into the bullseye particularly, you also affect the next dart in a negative sense of, of its resistance. Because you'll if you do a slow motion, and it really is difficult, but you can see it, the, the next dart will actually alter its flight path based on the position of the dart that's already in the target. So there is an effect. 
if you get enough pressure behind, if you really pump the air and you really nail it perfectly, you can you can put one dart in the end of another. You can't, okay. But more often than not, it'll just slide off. So it's it's changing the, the flight path at the very last second. And we don't think about this very often. We always think, well, if if we have success, that breeds success. You know, that's what we're told in other walks of life. But I want people to think about this because it got me thinking about the nature of target and aiming. And I think this is so important because we have a lot of metaphors in our language about achievement based on aiming and targets. And yet very few of us really spend much time on target practice. Think about archery. This is the archery is the next level of target activity that is related to the blowgun darts because the arrows stick in the target. But think about guns now. Okay. You've got bullet holes, different, very different. The the arrow or the dart are sticking out of the target, physically influencing other incoming projectiles. The bullet isn't. The bullet's embedded in the target. It's not having that influence. Now think about basketball. Say you're shooting free throws, practicing free throws. Well, you shoot one free throw. It's it's gone. It's self-absorbing. It's not staying there in the basket. But imagine in time, if if you had a different view of that. So all of your shots were stacking up. Well, the basket would be blocked off, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. It would be you 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 would be completely sealed off. And I think we don't think about how my my final takeout here is that the notion of targets has everything to do with whether or not the projectile or what is aimed re- remains in the target or not. Does it affect the target or not? The basketball doesn't affect doesn't change the basket. You shoot the basket and you get the ball back one way or another. Not true of the blowgun darts. They're remaining there until you pull them out. The gunshots, you're not going to get back. You're not going to go pull those out of the back target. And if you look at that for a moment, you, you we've got a spectrum of nuance that's different. All those things would be categorized as target aiming type of activities. They're not the same thing at all. And you could map those out and see that there is a nuance difference across all of them. But it isn't just nuance conceptually in a way you can't talk about. It's very material and very clear. And I think once you break down one of those categories, you start to see all of these shades of gray that confuse people, all of these shades of meaning that seem too difficult and too much to think about. Really, that's just laziness that there are very clear lines of demarcation and they have enormous physical differences, enormous physical differences. And if we think about, well, roll this all back to the habit of success and achievement of hitting the target, that's not always true, you know? Not unless you were getting it refreshed every instant. And that's not what, you know, certain target activities end up being it reminds me in terms of writing if you really nail something in a book i like this idea of having to go and pull something out yes to hit it again 
And I think it's going to take a bit of time to think about what pulling that out would mean metaphorically. In a yes. Sense. Okay, good. I'm glad. I'm, I, I, was, I was worried I wasn't making myself clear, but you got, you're on to it. You're on to yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think about artists, uh, whether they're musicians, filmmakers, or writers, or visual artists, you know, <clears throat> there's something to be said for doing the same thing over and over again, but there's a the law of diminishing returns kicks in pretty quickly with that. And then you think of other artists that really go in and, you know, Gus has this thing. I'll send you some pictures because they're really beautiful patterns that he's been making with empty plastic water bottles on the floor. Cool. He He's made these incredibly beautiful snake-like patterns with, with the water bottles. Like he's not lining them up straight. He's doing right. this kind of thing. Oh, and I love that. You should, the, I'm glad you're photographing that. I'll send one to you. Uh, just because I was I was telling Rios, I, I said, do you know how kind of incredible this is? Because you would think that a kid would make this kind of line and then follow it to its end point. And he does do that sometimes, but sometimes he has these, at this point, he has about 50 water bottles, right? And it'll just, it'll be these long, gentle curves that he'll do. But then when he's done and he's looked at it a little bit, he'll go in and he'll kick everything down. He'll hit it, knock all the water bottles over. That's him resetting the target. He has to. I like that. Resetting is a great word there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with writing, because that's my preferred art form, it makes me wonder what resetting the target looks like. You know? I'm really glad that you saw, you know, right through to that because that was why I wanted to raise this, and that 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 is very, very well said, more more articulate than than, than I than I did, uh, much more so, I think, and it reflects, you know, connects back to our personal sense of time. I think it's a beautiful lead in for people who are wondering about what improvisation means in art. And why that was so important, particularly in music, but also in terms of, of painting, you know, the action painting of Jackson Pollock, uh, the use of chance in both music and painting and uh, in writing, Philip K. Dick using the I Ching, you know, these are all, they're all exploring this idea of resetting the target. And let's face it, targets are not surprisingly like clock faces. You know, you, you know, I make my own, I paint my own targets. And every time I think of them, you know, a target is very much like a clock face and a compass. And you've got, you've got it all right there. The, the visual syntax is, is connected across everything. Um, okay. Well, the tip is, is, is building on this visualization sort of thing. And we talked, uh, you were mentioning about just sort of the, the joy of, of thinking about architecture. And to give another plug for Tash and books, I picked up a whole bunch of, the, I mean, this is like a really beautiful book. Ooh. It's very substantial. It just has lush photography. It's called, this one is called 100 Contemporary, 100 Contemporary Houses. And they're from all over the world. Um there are just it, it's all got a modernist uh postmodern but so they're very contemporary they are just so amazing to look at and 
I find that my mind gets a new sense of, of healing, restorative structure, just glancing through, you know, it, it, it completely takes, it, it's a different kind of attention than directly reading. The, the writing in this is, is very well done. I find all of Tashin's books, but just these beautiful, you know, we, we have architectural sort of then blueprints and yeah. uh, drawings and then the photography and I get an enormous sense of, I mean, look at that. Now, that's nothing like, I I mean, I wouldn't want to necessarily live in that. Can you say that? No, no, I wouldn't either. But I, I like but the way it looks a lot. It's something very, very satisfying to look at. This is another thing. This is a series which uh, Thames and Hudson is a great British publisher of, of works on the arts. This is their sort of introduction to modern music. Every page uh, I've written on, it's got beautiful sections of, of sheet music from original uh, composers. It's it's a great introduction to uh, so-called serious music of the modern age, and therefore also a great way to understand the transition between romantic music and modern music. Um, Bartok, Cage, on and on. But just looking at the, the sheet music reproduced or the little diagrams of the electronic music, people who know Brian Eno's uh, most famous record albums know that he would include on the back little visualizations of the electronic programming, which I just think are beautiful designs unto themselves. And they tie back into Gus's arrangement of the water bottles of the message here is simply engaging with design, even at its most abstract level. I can, I feel is an enormously healing restorative process for the mind and it will trigger in language-based people particularly people who are actively writing it's a great way to step outside that whole framework and and just you feel yes you know like there's this is another kind of system that i can engage with this is a whole other language this is and i don't have to be expert in it i don't have to i can look at it as a complete amateur as little gus going to the zoo or the science museum and that sense of exuberant play and openness and there not being a right or a wrong way to look at things i think that is just uh absolutely so important and you find if you if you pursue this I've, I've i've sort of shown books in architecture and music here but uh i've got another one on uh, on fabric designs it's uh looking at at fabric designs uh internationally african and indian particularly and there are some beautiful women that some of the fabrics hang off of but i find that i look at that and i think my God, I can just get enchanted by this and I don't have to know what I'm talking about. I can respond completely psychologically without any of the vocabulary right. I don't have to know exactly what, you know, 
exact all these women's art of you know articles of clothing are called i can just look at the colors the shapes and and the abstraction of it just osmosis in and i feel it then emerge as a kind of real a calm but energized coherence that i didn't have before and isn't that why some people so many people gravitate towards your writing and my writing is our ability through research and thinking to use proper nouns in such a way that people have that feeling with the words on the page like oh i don't know what the hell that means yeah but it sounds awesome (laughs) thing you know and this kind of round will round up this tip of my my theory that the language that we hear come out of our mouths so this is about speaking but just imagine like if someone's depressed or anxious or trepidatious in some way this is one of the lines i get my students to speak and i and they all smile and they start feeling better because i say you're going to feel better if you say this huge tropical lobsters covered with knobs and spikes brilliant patterns and designs you know and when you hear your your own voice and the mechanics of your mouth saying that suddenly you know there's there's a reality to that and you're and because that's not something that one normally says it's liberating and it's 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 a tremendous lost explorer thing of just expanding that horizon, you know? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Excellent. Have you been dreaming lately? Cause I you know have. I have. Gus was, I, I... Gus was recently. Gus woke up from a nightmare last night. Oh, really? He had, he had a nightmare. Yeah. He woke up screaming. And, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So did I, you I, have I... night terrors as a child? No. Often, you know, no, no. Rios did. Yeah. I, I I had I had strange uh well I did have nightmares, but I had strange dislocation things as if I was flying or mm-hmm. as if the bed was or whatever I was sleeping I had I had uh falling dreams. A lot okay. of falling dreams. I, I remember very particularly a dream of riding my tricycle off of a cliff. <laughs> It's always stuck with me. One of my scariest ones. I'm I was maybe four or five years old when I had that dream. I uh, remember that more vividly than my actual memories of being four and five years old. So stuck with Well, me. that's a beautiful statement of the power of dreams, which mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's I think one of our crucial themes, certainly one of my long-term interests. Uh this dream was I, I I've actually had a couple repeating with my old dingo Jip, sort of my beautiful animal totem spirit who um, she got cancer when she was six and yet lived for 10 more years. I think I might have told the story that that she was the nominal child in, in the marriage and in a deeper, more like my spiritual familiar. So uh we threw everything we had financially at at her cancer treatment and she's actually in the veterinarian literature uh internationally uh and Mm -hmm. helped well i helped the treatment of humans as well uh, Mm because it's the same regimen it's just with the nurses but she was in the dream and i've had a couple about she's repeat she's 
come back to me of late and I'm wondering uh she comes in and out but she's been back this one was odd though because another really important figure uh in my growing up was was in it and I was kind of pleased at, at how he appeared Tom Waits I I was obsessed with Tom Waits when I was uh between 17 and 21 I was like mm-hmm. the guy you talked about sort of imitating you know Jim Morrison uh, I, I really, uh, I took that character very far. I, it was hard for me to accept that Tom Waits was in character or a character mm-hmm. in a vaudeville sense that he created. And I've had some, as devoted as I was to him, and as much as I admire his overall arc of career, I really do. There are niggling things that get to me. Uh, and I've had... Um, there was a, a moment of uh, a chance to meet him earlier in real life, and I passed on it because I really didn't want, I just, I, I wanted to just have the private association with him as an artist and not meet him as a person. Uh, you might have had that experience. There's some mm-hmm. people who just kind of, you just don't want to take the risk or you want to respect the sacred, uh, for the whole bunch of tangled things but he's been in many of my dreams over the years and oftentimes not uh not so pleasantly uh i I felt a kind of a sense of deception he's kind of emblemized uh an unfair uh sense of of the celebrity and this artist that i admired not being real authentic or you know, that kind of thing. But in this dream, he was really warm and uh, very much just sort of a neighbor in the community. And he was helping with, uh, Jip was needing some sort of vet care. The, The cancer didn't figure into the dream. But Tom was being supportive and kind of just sort of the neighbor, uh, not the celebrity figure in my life, my, you know, very young adult hero. He was much more, uh, you know, like a good neighbor. And I felt really good. I had a warm sort of human feeling of not any sadness at leaving that dream world behind. Uh, I felt it was a good lesson. Uh, I, I didn't know. I'm not sure why the dingo is appearing uh, she's she's shown up in about two or three other dreams, but I had a good feeling about Tom and that made me feel good because it, it was kind of like looking at a scar and thinking, oh, I, I remember getting that. That was mm. that was a good story behind it. Do you know what I mean? That's kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. that's how it how it worked for me. That's interesting. So your dingo lived to be 16. Yeah. Well, my healer is just about to be 16. Yeah. Well, there's she's a lot of similarities. She's, I mean, she's getting and, close. She's, yeah. the getting close. She's, she's You've been, been talking about, you know, yeah. that those, and that was just like it with Jip. I mean, I, uh, I had the vet come out to my house three yeah. weekends running and it, it didn't happen because Jip still wanted to be there. You know, mm-hmm. it was. I keep uh, thinking this dog's complex. about to die. I've called Rios in. 
on some on some nights and told her you know it might be about that time you know you might want to say your goodbyes and it's looking like and then the next morning she'll be up it's as though she can tell this is is she's like i'm not dead yet (laughs) yeah i mean this is really really uh a very it's both dreamlike isn't it but also very practical about this uh, sense of time it's kalua time you know kalua time Yeah. yeah 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 exactly Exactly. Well, folks, uh, this is my new favorite episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yes. And I have two things to send us out with. David, I don't know if you know the Japanese composer Takamitsu does a lot of film score work. But uh, for anyone, uh, this is is one of his most famous pieces of music. But there have been five pieces of music from popular song on up to serious music where I've had to pull over by the side of the road driving because I was just, I couldn't go on uh, and not just listen fully. But I really encourage people to listen to the piece from me flows what you call time. Mm, I love that. Uh, I love that. That's so good. It's a gamelan-based piece that's not too long. It's just simply haunting. It has a strange degree of structure to it, and yet is very unstructured, like dream and thought. You introduced this to me, actually, didn't you? You sent this link to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of my favorite pieces of music, and I go back to it. It's just, it's haunting, inspiring, and structuring and I think here is a great final quotation to end this segment from an amazing uh, poet, the precursor of people like Jim Morrison. And uh, I think my favorite one-legged gun runner, uh, mm-hmm. Arthur Rambeau, you have arrived from all time and will leave for everywhere. That's a great lost explorer's call to action and affirmation for us all. You have arrived from all time and will leave for everywhere.